Welcome everyone uh, to this two panel session today, this morning, um, around uh, called an EU Ecosystem for Rare Diseases, the OD Expert Group Proposals for Navigating the Challenges Ahead. Um, my name is Christian Javelon. I'm a partner with Copenhagen Economics, and we've had the pleasure of being the knowledge partner for the OD Expert Group over the past three years, um, supporting the experts in the group. Uh, developing and shaping uh, proposals towards a better uh, rare disease uh, ecosystem in Europe. Why is this uh, so important? Uh, at this moment in time, we're faced with a once-in-a-generation legislative change around the, rare in, around the rare disease landscape, around development of medicines, access for patients to innovative new medicines. Um, and this, if we look at uh, the history, the current piece of legislation on rare diseases have been in place for more than 20 years. So it's probably fair to say that what is being decided uh, at this time will be in place and shape the whole environment and the lives of thousands, tens of thousands of rare disease patients over the next 20, 30 years. So it is indeed an important time um, for people living with rare diseases. For this reason, the OD Expert Group formed some three years ago to bring uh, some of the highest expertise in the rare disease, um, within rare diseases, to inform the European Commission as it developed its proposal and to inform uh, decision makers in the following uh, debates and discussions that have been taking place already and are taking place now and will take place uh, over the coming, uh, in the coming time. Because making, such a making these legislative changes, um, there are many, many concerns that need to be balanced. And in the end, uh, the devil is in fact in the details. Many good intentions that from abroad, from afar, can look um, good and fair and balanced might in fact have detrimental consequences. If we get it right, though, there's also the opportunity of actually having fantastic uh, positive consequences, meaning over the next 20, 30 years, we'll see a vibrant community uh, with researchers and companies developing rare diseases to, uh, that are being accessed at affordable prices uh, to the benefit of people living uh, with a rare disease. And that's why we're here today. Today we're going to have two, uh, two sessions. The first will be on the European Commission's proposal, and to try and contrast that and, uh, and look uh, and, and then discuss that in view of the proposals that the OD expert group um, presented and have already presented. In fact, 14 proposals that go across the value chain of development from research development incentives, archetypes for modulating incentives. This is some of the new backbone of the Commission proposal that not every uh, development project or medicine development project receives the same incentives, but it might be calibrated, differentiated, or modulated is the terminology. Um, on into uh, into uh, regulatory pathways and so forth towards access. The second panel will discuss the EU HTA, so the new joint clinical assessment, the new EU HTA process that foresees a, a much more centralized approach to assessing 
data coming out of clinical trials or other types of data that is being used to assess the safety, efficacy, and so forth for new medicines. Now it turns out here that there are specificities around OMPs, often medicinal products. Uh, again, the devil's in the detail here that needs to be taken into consideration in order actually to drive benefits and value from such a new EUHG regulation instead of ending up with uh, additional cost and a stifled system. So those are the two panels here today. But uh, a little bit about the OD Expert Group. As I said, it's a group that formed itself three years ago because it wanted to inform you are taking together some of the best specialists and expert, experts across the rare disease landscape in Europe and inform decision makers about this new, uh, these new uh, legislative changes. It's a multidisciplinary, cross-functional expert group, 20 plus experts from across the rare disease community, from researchers, academia, patient representatives, members of the investor community, rare disease companies and trade organizations. It is a high ambitious group because it's a, it wants to be and has already proven with its uh, proposals and its, um, its insights into decision makers and, and policy makers and those shaping the, the, the proposals from the Commission, it has already uh, suggested and proposed a number of very concrete <coughs> suggestions. This is in fact exactly what we'll be discussing today, those, those suggestions contrast them and compare them with the European Commission's proposal, which is out since 26 April, and then later on the EU HTA, as I mentioned before, because the new uh, way that we think about clinical, joint clinical assessments is also very important uh, for the opportunities to um, provide better treatments and better lives for people living with rare disease. So that's what we're here uh, for today. Before we go into the first panel, I'd like to hand over the word um, to, um, no, let me, let, me, let me just say before we do that, um, during the panel sessions, you'll be able to ask questions that I'll then be able to pick up. And that's from the participant here and from you who joined us uh, online. So if you uh, look at the QR code, you, could, uh, you can uh, simply use your phone and, uh, and take a picture of that point your camera at it and it'll take you to the slido.com webpage where you can then use the hashtag rare diseases and then you'll, be, you'll get access to a platform that allows you to ask questions. You can ask them and post the questions anytime you want. I'll have access to them um, uh, here on my, on my tablet and when it's due time I'll make sure to bring these in. Maybe as part of the debate we're having where the question fits well, or maybe at the end where it's a good opportunity to round up some things. So uh, please, uh, please make sure that you have uh, done that. And just as a matter, if you remember, I know that it's sometimes difficult when all of a sudden you're in the spotlight and you're, uh, you're, your question is there, but, and you're writing it here, but please do state your name and affiliation so that I can uh, bring that into the, into the question as well. It's just good to know who, who asked because we're interested and curious. So before we actually go to the, uh, to the first panel, I'd like to uh, hand over the word to Professor Mauricio Scapa, who, has been, uh, who is the chair of the OD Expert Group. He'll also join uh, the first panel, but um, Mauricio 
Would you care to uh, put a few words on how you see the uh, rare disease landscape here today in the OD expert group? Well, thank you very much, Christian, for this, uh, for this introduction. And uh, also thank you uh, participating to this, uh, to this uh, meeting online or in presence. I'm sorry that I cannot be with you due to some clinical work that I was not uh, able to, to postpone. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm very happy that uh, we are discussing and I hope that you clear me uh, uh, well, that you hear me well uh, what I'm saying. So the situation now and the need uh, is quite uh, uh, important because, I mean, rare diseases uh, is, uh, if it, I hear an echo. So if you. You're fine, actually, you know. here. So if you feel that you can continue, it would be okay. Okay. So, uh, I mean, rare diseases are becoming and became uh, in the last 10 years a major field of interest for the European Commission. We know that uh, we have more than 6,000 disorders. We know that we have uh, uh, more than 35 million people affected uh, in Europe by uh, one of the 6,000 rare diseases. Nevertheless, uh, although there is a big interest, there is a big uh, commitment by the European Commission launching quite a lot of projects of different kind, let's say research and clinics, uh, uh, there is still uh, an incredible amount of unmet needs uh, regarding diagnosis and regarding in particular therapy. Regarding diagnosis, there is still a big uh, gap uh, in time of uh, the first finding this first symptom and to have the right diagnosis of the disease. There are still quite a lot of patients with wrong diagnosis, but technologically speaking, we are increasing the power of diagnosis with uh, all the omics that now are routinely done and performed in our laboratory. And actually, I have to say that technology now is overwhelming uh, the knowledge uh, we have uh, in rare diseases. So we need to have uh, much more uh, basic studies in etiology and pathophysiology of the disorders. But when we come actually to the therapy development, then there is a big, uh, a big uh, unmet need. Why? First of all, because uh, I mean we have a disparity between the, the, the among the seven thousand disorders. We have indeed. Uh, studied in the orphan drug expert group uh, what is the percentage and the situation of therapy and we have discovered that uh, actually uh, the only 28 percent of uh, uh, the targeted rare diseases uh, uh, studied for a therapy do not have a therapy but 72 percent of the, the therapy that we have uh, at the moment are actually devoted only to a few or a little number of diseases. It seems that there is an interest uh, for the company to study already well-known and, and diseases with already uh, a therapy. The second, uh, the second problem in rare diseases is that the development of therapies is not uh, distributed equally among the different fields of specialties, so immunology rather than metabolics, rather than lung diseases or, or kidney disease. But the availability of therapy are mostly devoted on three major uh, groups, like the blood uh, and, 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 and cancer uh, field, the, the immunology field, the dermatology, and everything else is in, in, the other, in the other part. So, I mean, the availability of therapy is not really very well distributed. 
Then we have another discrepancy that is making uh, the therapy uh, non-equal, non which is the, the, the therapy specific for children and adults. They say that only 12% of the therapy that are developed now are devoted to children. The other 88% of uh, uh, therapies are uh, for adults and potentially adults and children. So the clinical trials are really need to be concentrated also on the pediatric area and not only on the adult area. And then, of course, we have uh, the majority of, uh, of therapies, uh, the 96% of therapies that are devoted to disorders that are rare but not so rare, while there, are, there is a big number of disorders which is indeed very rare, but they are not really of interest for developing therapy, while these uh, diseases have the right as the other. So there is a discrepancy also according the rarity of the disorder in the development of, uh, of therapy. So to conclude, I think that uh, this uh, meeting and this expert group uh, is crucial also to continue to work and to be sustained, because indeed we have identified also a way to improve this, uh, this, this status on uh, development and on rare diseases. Uh, first of all, discussing uh, how to improve the ecosystem of research and also how the company can really develop therapies. Then we, we, we can, uh, uh, with this group and with the discussion that we are starting today, to find uh, how to improve the system and uh, how to create incentives and have uh, financial rewards for companies that are entering in the rare disease field. We need to improve the flexibility and then uh, in the, the speed of regulatory pathways. So we need really to make the discussion of the new regulation that was published on the April 26. And then, of course, uh, uh, we need to enter in a sort of uh, achievability and sustainability uh, in the national health system of uh, uh, drugs for rare disorders. So these are the four main lines. And then we have other topics that we can discuss with the panel even later. So I think that uh, just telling these few words, we see how complex is the field. I am very optimistic because technology is already we are entering in the gene therapy uh, era and we have uh, uh, evidences that gene therapy is indeed a way to go, not very quick, but it is already, we have very, very important results uh, in eye diseases, in thalassemia, in some neurodegenerative disorders, so it's an open field. Nevertheless, we need to, to consider the vast majority of the rare diseases and the vast majority of patients and the need of these patients and the need of the national health system to sustain the cost of these therapies. So the, 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 the world is vast. We have the knowledge, we have the expertise, we have the commitment, we have the group. And so I'm very optimistic that uh, discussing this and finding new ways, we will, we will meet the unmet needs that the patient really have to improve the quality of life and to a better diagnosis and a better therapy access. Thank you, Christian. And uh, I give very you much for starting the panel. Thank you very much, Mauricio. I think I really like the way you, in the end, you're very optimistic. But uh, boy, if there, was, uh, if there was anyone who doubted me when I said that there are many nuances and subtleties and specificities around the rare disease uh, landscape that needs to be taken into account, I think 
Mauricio pinpointed that. And at the same time, you remain very optimistic. I really like that, and I think that's a fantastic way to, to kick off our panel uh, here now. I have uh, the pleasure of presenting to you a, a very, very uh, qualified panel that will discuss um, the proposal from the European Commission and contrast that uh, with, the with, the, with the OD expert group's uh, ideas and proposals and hopefully get a really good debate and insights with you as, as, as audience into what, how do we move forward here, where are the main uh, challenges and what kind of solutions do we see. Uh, we have with, you, with us online uh, Jan Lecam, he's the CEO of patient organization Eurotis. Jan has dedicated the past 30 years of his life, professional and personal, um, to, uh, to health and, and medical research. He was a co-founder of the Eurotis Rare Disease and been the CEO since uh, forever. Jan, uh, is it more than 20 years, I think. Uh, so a, a, a patient voice to be reckoned with. Thank you so much for being here. We also have with us online uh, Mauricio Scarpa, who uh, is also the chair that you just heard. Um, Professor Scarpa is uh, currently the coordinator of the European Reference Network for Hereditary Metabolic Diseases, and he has extensive expertise as a basic scientist in genetics and biotechnology. Um, so when you say you're optimistic, Mauricio, I am also a bit more uh, optimistic. Then uh, to the left of me here in, in the flesh, um, we have uh, Simon Bennett. Simon is the Director of Global Regulatory Policy uh, at EU for Biogen. Uh, Simon um, um, has a long history in the company. He's worked there for more than 17 years and then through that time uh, gathered an enormous insight into how companies develop uh, new treatments, what they look for and what is important in terms of incentives and framework conditions. So an enormously important perspective. Thank you, Simon, for being here. With us today as well, we have uh, Victor to my, to my left. And Victor is a, a director of um, government affairs at UCOBE uh, trade organization. It's the organization for in, uh, European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs, uh, abbreviated UCOBE. Uh, Victor has, been, uh, has led uh, the organization's work on the rare disease dacia, and um, I'm very happy to bring uh, you on board because you're able to also frame from a broader industry perspective um, how the view is and what is needed to uh, continue to develop new innovative treatments. And finally, but certainly not least, I would do a drum roll if I could. Thank you, Kaya uh, Kantorska, for joining us here today. Uh, you have taken time out, out of your busy schedule to join us from uh, Gigi Santa. And, um, um, where you are policy officer for, for the pharmaceuticals. You have uh, studied actually biotechnology, so it, you come from a very scientific background. Today you work with this dossier. Since 2016, you've been responsible for the development of the pharmaceutical legislation and policies um, concerning uh, yeah, medicinal products in, in Europe, and with a particular focus uh, on orphan drugs that we'll be discussing today. Now, while I'm sure you appreciated my introduction and Mauritius, I'm now really happy to get into, uh, into some uh, true discussion uh, with my panels, panelists. I'd like to start with you, Jan, and hear from that uh, patient perspective. Uh, how do you see the proposal that has been out there now, and how does that, how does that meet your expectations for a, a, a framework geared uh, for, for, for the meeting the needs of a rare disease, of people living with the rare disease. Thank you, Christian. First, as we said publicly already, Eurotis does welcome the proposal from the Commission. 
because it focuses the intentions are good in focusing on the unmet medical needs of the population and also being more centric not only on the needs but also on access so there is this intention and this ambition which is good we're also happy to see that rare diseases are well positioned through the different elements of that regulation when there were high concerns of the fact that the regulation on pharmaceutical products and pediatrics and gene therapy uh, were repealed into this new uh, pharmaceutical uh, proposal legislation proposal uh, and so we're happy with many elements the reduction of time of review uh, the the uh, embedment of prime into the legislation uh, in order to support the, the, the breakthrough uh, transformative or potentially curative therapies uh, we're happy with the repositioning of, of, of medicines and, and many other uh, elements now maybe Christian we should focus in the context of discussion on the unmet medical needs the proposed legislation uh, focuses on unmet medical needs and that's a good thing it, it's a choice that we try to attract investment society says I want to attract investment where the needs of my population in general and in patients in particular are so to be more driven by the needs of the people than only by the technology or by the market or if we put it differently it's by saying that the market should be driven not only by me too and the capacity of pushing for healthcare providers to prescribe uh, at the hospital or in the community but by the needs which all that is good uh, intention but there is big buts there and first we're happy also with the the fact that the threshold of the prevalence is maintained at five in ten thousand and that was very important to us and to the working group on incentives uh, here today it was very important in order to align also internationally with the with the u.s context and with the previous context of the legislation in europe so that's a good thing but now comes the but the but is that in the maintenance of the prevalence there is now provisions in the new legislation on the accumulation the accumulation of several therapeutic indication for the same product which is also a good intention because it's to avoid that there is a blockbuster developed from an orphan drug designation but on the other hand we need to assess how much that could disincentivize the develop the clinical trial and the generation of clinical evidence in other therapeutic indications with the same product so we need we need to try and test it before we put it really in the legislation that's for the threshold prevalence and accumulation of prevalence but for the unmet medical needs i'd like to insist that we are extremely worried by what is in the article 83 for the moment which defines what is uh, uh, unmet medical med medical needs and we've been very clear in this european expert group on orphan drug incentives that it's even a recommendation number one in the report to maintain a broad orphan drug designation and to modulate within that broad designation and what the pro legislative proposal is proposing in fact is a wording which is much more restrictive already and which in addition leaves to the ema the interpretation of that wording in developing the scientific guidelines in our perspective an orphan medicinal product is designated because there is no treatment or because it is doing significantly better than what exists 
So in itself, it is already addressing an unmet medical needs. And there is no need to develop guidelines and pages to understand that. And we have been able to work since 20 years within the EMA, within the Committee of Open Medicinal Products, to use that language pretty well. There was no, and there was no real debate about that aspect. So I don't need, I don't see why we're opening a bigger debate here, at least for the field of rare diseases. Now, more broadly in health, I understand, but in the field of rare diseases. Pushing to the EMA to develop a scientific guidelines is a real concern to us because it creates unpredictability of the language which is in the regulation. How are we going to interpret languages such as saying that a remaining high morbidity and mortality or a meaningful reduction in disease morbidity mortality? According on how you interpret this wording, the window is wide as it has been now in Europe so far, although it was already more narrow than in the US, but if we put it even more narrow, we increase the discrepancy with the context in the US. We need to think Europe always in a context which is US, China, global, let's put it. But here, that's very dangerous to push it to a scientific committee who will say what the language is here. Even more so than in the Article 162, it says that the member states will be involved there, the HTA will be involved, the payers will be involved, will, and may involve patient representative and healthcare providers and developers. That's not possible. <laughs> so we're going to discuss that, but without the patients. We're all about the patient needs and the medical needs, but we're going to discuss without the patients and without the doctors. That just doesn't make sense. Even worse is that the additional one year of market exclusivity for high and medical needs will also need to be defined. What do we mean by high? And here too, we leave that discussion to maybe we discuss it with patients and healthcare providers. So these are really our concern. And to conclude, we think that we need to put a language which is in the regulation, which is simple, which is directly usable by committee and will not change for 20 years so that there is predictability for the investment. Investment needs visibility and predictability, not uncertainty that would change according to political context and being left to scientific committees. Thank you so much, Jan. Uh, this was an enormously interesting uh, input, how you link the new uh, ways of defining and, 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 and describing unmet medical need. And you say, well, we already have significant benefit linked to the designation, the orphan drug designation, which really does that. Um, big concerns around uh, some of these uncertainties that are then being introduced. Um, a lot of devil in the detail there. I'd like to turn now the word, um, pass the word over to Simon um, from Biogen. Simon, when you uh, look at the, um, at the proposal coming out and contrast that with the discussions and the proposals coming out of the OD expert group, what stands out that you'd like to share with us? Thanks, Christian, and, uh, and thanks, Jan, as well. And, um, and it's great to be back in Brussels after uh, almost three years personally. So um, thanks for organizing this event and, and opening up the invitation. Um, I think from, from our perspective, um, I'll focus on the regulatory pathways. A number of the points that, that Jan's already made around unmet medical need uh, and some of the proposals around that the Commission have made around that are, you know, we echo those, those comments. Um, I think one of the great things about the OD expert group is it's an almost a, a unique forum in, in, in my experience in terms of bringing the different stakeholders together to talk about some of these topics. And there's significant overlap, obviously, between uh, the areas we look at. But just in terms of regulatory uh, support and regulatory pathways, um, just, I just wanted to bring us back to sort of the work that we've done within the OD expert group. 
um, and the proposals that we've made around regulatory pathways. And I think, you know, what we've pushed for or what we've been advocating for is, is really trying to make sure that the regulatory pathways, uh, you know, can accommodate this, you know, the specific requirements of, of uh, rare disease, uh, rare disease development, drugs, drugs for rare diseases. Uh, and that's what we're really uh, looking for, forward to. Um, and that's what we've perhaps not seen so much brought out in the Commission's proposals to date. Um, in our policy paper, we talked about, you know, the, the idea of an early engagement pathway um, as being a potential vehicle for having, you know, a, a, a better regulatory framework around, captured around, to capture some of the sort of uncertainties around rare diseases. And certainly that would fit with you know, the archetype one and two products that we talked about in the paper, an archetype one and two are uh, those disease areas where there's very little research and development or, or very few products authorised in a particular rare condition. Um, and then working in those sort of areas is a little bit, to me, it's a little bit like trying to drive a train while you're building the track as you go along because those areas are challenging because there's, you know, very little regulatory guidance, there's very little precedent in terms of products already approved. Um, there's also evolving science, so we're learning more about the diseases as we go along. Um, there's also very few potentially clinical endpoints that are accepted for regulatory decision making at that time. So I think that those are the, those are the areas where we're really looking for uh, additional regulatory support within the existing framework. And some of the elements that we've talked about in the paper um, that could potentially be brought out a little bit more in terms of the Commission's proposals um, are things like um, you know, the early engagement across multiple stakeholders to talk about novel outcome measures, clinical outcome measures that could potentially address some of the questions in these very rare conditions. Also, um, on the EMA's operational side, strengthening the expertise that the EMA has to advise medicine developers on, um, you know, how to take these products from the research through to, to actually to an approved product. I think we already have the COMP, the Committee for Orphan Medicinal Products, that currently is a, you know, is, is a committee. I know that in the Commission's proposals, um, the idea is that the comp will be reformulated, I think it's fair to say, as, as a working party. And I think ultimately, probably the Commission is, I mean, Kai, I'll let Kai comment, is aiming for the same, same thing as the Orphan Drug Expert Group in terms of trying to enable that flexibility to bring the right experts in at the right time to advise medicine developers. Uh, and that's one of the, you know, moves behind that. But also thinking about things like, um, you know, utilising target development profiles as you go through the development process, um, having a designated point of contact at the EMA from a very early stage of development through to, through to later, later stages is something that, again, would help um, medicine developers in the very rare disease area. So those are some of the proposals that we've put into the, the Orphan Drug Expert Group and certainly some things that, you know, perhaps we can discuss later and, and we'd like to see brought out a little bit more in terms of the Commission's proposals. The other point that I just wanted to, to raise related to regulatory pathways is, is sort of slightly connected. It's uh, in terms of significant benefit. Um, and significant benefit is obviously important. Certainly when we talk about archetype three in the paper, we're talking about areas where rare disease, in rare diseases where there's already, you know, a number of products authorised. And significant benefit you know, is important for confirming the orphan designation at the time of marketing authorization. Um, and in order to achieve significant benefit, you need to demonstrate a clinically relevant advantage over an existing therapy or a, a major contribution to patient care. So I think, you know, as medicine developers, when we're developing these products, 
it would be helpful to have more clarity around what constitutes significant benefit, and particularly in terms of um, how you would make those comparisons to make sure that you've got a clinically relevant advantage. Because obviously, by the time you have your marketing authorization, you've often not done the trials against a comparator because the comparators only identified very late in development for some of these diseases. So I think having some guidelines around how to do indirect comparisons for products in, in that area to contribute to significant benefit would be helpful. I think also um, some more clarity around major contributions to patient care um, would, would also be helpful from, from a medicine development perspective. And, you know, I acknowledge that some of these things are probably beyond the legislation and, and partly sitting guidelines. I think, you know, bringing it back to the proposals from the Commission, I think, you know, there's only so much that can be done in legislation. I think when we first started looking at this from our perspective on the regulatory side, we built on the success of the, OD, of, of the current orphan regulation, the current legislation. And I think from the regulatory perspective, we're really looking at sort of tweaks, um, you know, areas outside of the legislation where we can potentially help facilitate these developments in, in, in a better way as part of the overall package from the proposals from the group. Thank you so much, Simon. Uh, thank you for that contribution on regulatory pathway. And really, really, uh, I think, good to hear and interesting to hear that, there, that the engagement also along this development path and, and, and in the regulatory process, that there is an opportunity actually to have better advice or better collaboration even as I and also as the OD expert group talks about it, even a, a, a kind of partnership approach to bringing forth the best and, uh, medicines, even despite the uncertainty that is inherent uh, with data and, and with the designations and so forth. Um, and, and there's a, a real opportunity, that, that something that, that requires, a let's say, maybe not a huge uh, regulatory change in the way that we think about incentives or years of protection, but rather the way that we are able to work together uh, to bring forward the best and also uh, quicker to uh, shut down the ones that I do not promise uh, advantages to patients. Thank you, Simon, so much. Um, Victor Martins, Victor from uh, from UCOB, um, also being part of the expert group here. Ha, ha, what's your angle to, to some of what you're hearing now? What would you like to pick up on? And, and, and also you bring the perspective of many, many companies that are active in this field. Thanks, Christian. Um, I think one of the things I just want to touch uh, touch on a bit is the, is the modulation framework. I know... Uh, Jan mentioned it, Maurizio mentioned it, but I think that is kind of one of those areas where I think the OD expert group has been really kind of at the front of that discussion, being able to put something forward kind of uh, while the commission was in the process of developing its proposal and kind of proactively said, look, this is how we think we address the, the future of these challenges. And we really went into that looking at, you know, how do we support the development of OMPs, especially in that 95% of, uh, of areas, uh, the 95% of rabies that don't have treatment. And we very quickly said, look, let, we need to move away from that one-size-fits-all model. That's not going to work. I think it's, it's great to see that, you know, starting on a positive point, I think that's one thing that the Commission and, and the OD expert group really quickly agreed on, and it's great to see in the proposal as well, that, 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 that the old model, the last 20 years, we need to build on successes, but that one-size-fits-all approach is not the way forward. So, and it's important to point out, before we kind of talk about the incentives in, in more detail, that this is one part of a broader set of uh, proposals, and like Christian, you mentioned at the opening, the incentive modulation is, is one part of a lot more, and it's not going to solve everything. It's not going to be the magic bullet that means, perfect, well, we're not going to have uh, therapies for all rare diseases. We need to see this as one part of a more holistic approach that goes beyond the legislation as well. So I just want to caveat anything I say with, this is one part of a much broader conversation. So when we looked at the incentive framework, 
the first thing we did is we, we built on a number of key principles we all agreed on, and Jan alluded to these as well. Um, and we looked at, so how do we drive investment in, in OMPs? What is the, what's the investment case as well? How do we make sure that companies continue to move in that, that direction? And we built on, on five principles. One, as Jan mentioned, maintaining uh, a broad uh, ODD and modulating within that system. Second, then modulating with it according to the difference, differences in investment cases, knowing that, and kind of as Simon, you alluded to, there are different needs. You know? In some cases, there might be basic research. In some places, there might be no knowledge at all. So we need to make sure we recognize those differences, the different barriers, the different levels of support that might be needed, and respond to those challenges. Third, we recognize that we can't and shouldn't base this on a restrictive interpretation of unmet need. So again, kind of looking at it from a, from a perhaps slightly different perspective from the, the commission side, but then building on as well the fact that there needs to be legal certainty and predictability to be able to, for, to encourage companies to move into that space, to address some of those market failures. There needs to be a degree of predictability. And finally, looking at the fact that these incentives need to go beyond just modulation as well. Because Sam, you touched on a lot of those there. And again, there's not one, one single solution. It needs to be taken holistically. And again, like, like I've said, in many cases, the lack of basic research, knowledge of a disease, the modes of actions are key barriers that limit kind of where, where and uh, when therapies can, can be kind of developed. And Professor Scarpa pointed this out as well. And that was kind of the basis on which we developed our proposal for how we modulate um, a, the, the incentive framework to encourage innovation. And uh, Simon, you've already kind of referred to the terminology, kind of our, our different archetypes. And we came up with three different archetypes, three different kind of strata upon which incentives can be based. And our first archetype, so what we're calling the archetype one, is all those areas where there's a lack of an approved treatment. So this is really kind of a, an area where we would see those first in condition treatments come forward. And what we'd suggest there is that we give them 12 years of, of orphan exclusivity to make sure that there, there is enough support because there is no basic research or there is a lack of understanding. So we do need to make sure there's sufficient incentives there to drive uh, innovation in that direction. Second, again, very creatively named Architect 2, um, is kind of those disease areas where there is a, a basic foundation of, of understanding of the disease. So that's where, so kind of that, that next step down. So there's, there's a bit of research there. Some of those initial barriers have been addressed. And this is then where we'd say, you know, is there a new technology or mechanism of action? Or are we addressing a population subset with this new therapy where there isn't anything else? And this is then kind of looking at, can we give these, com uh, these therapies 10 years of orphan exclusivity? And then finally, archetype three, those kind of therapy areas where we see quite a lot of, of R&D activity already. And we still want to drive innovation there, but we recognize they might need less support than, than those other two archetypes. Uh, and here we then be proposing eight years of market exclusivity. So with this, we tried to take a, a nuanced approach, saying, look, it's not a, a yes or no kind of challenge. We realize that there's different challenges for different therapy areas. Different approaches need to be taken. We don't want to say, let's only go into one area or only the other. We've been talking about the 95%. There's a definite, clear, and I think unquestionable need to address those disease areas. But even for those patients in that 5% group, or the people with rare disease in that 5% group, they might have some symptomatic treatments, but there's still a need for more to be done there as well. So we don't want to say, let's only look at this one group. Let's go beyond and make sure we don't leave those other patients behind as well. So that's how we've tried to approach and take that bit more of a, of a in our perspective, a balanced approach that drives innovation and research to all those patients that can still benefit from novel, um, from novel treatments, and not just looking at only those first to market, those first indication therapies. So that's how we've kind of come up with, with modulation from the OD expert group, looking at it from a holistic perspective, looking at what are the barriers and making sure we have 
really kind of a, a focused, a tailored approach to those incentives and coming up with that, that three-tiered approach, archetype one for 12, archetype two for 10, archetype three for eight, looking at the different levels of research that's needed. So I just want to lay that out kind of how, we, how we've seen that. And I think, again, I think in, in a lot of ways it chimes with the commission's up. I think we've taken it, if I can be so bold, say one step further, we've gone and looked at it from a slightly different perspective and tried to make sure we, we, we do come forward with the proposal that, that we think will work and address those challenges for both the 95% and those 5% as well. Thank you very much, Victor. Um, Mauricio, if it's okay with you, I think uh, maybe you can open up the, 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 the discussion uh, after we heard from Kaya, because I really feel a, a, an urge to uh, hear from Kaya uh, from the Commission around uh, the perspectives. Um, we heard the unmet need uh, definitions from Jan in the beginning. Does that drive uh, more focus on the right areas, or does it create more uncertainty? The modulation that is set to, let's say, uh, just sufficiently incentivize the investments, but we still need to drive investments in areas with multiple, you know, many products because there's, there's still an unmet need, um, but we might need less incentives in order to keep the innovation machine running. And, and finally, also the uh, connection with regulatory pathways, make sure we bring the right products. So definitely an, a very challenging and complex task. Kai, I'd like to hear from you. What have been some of the considerations uh, behind the proposal? And how do you? Uh, what are your intentions for tackling these uh, issues with the proposal? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Christian, and thank you um, a lot for the invitation, um, the opportunity to be here. I must say I followed with great interest this group uh, since the few years. So we were at a different stage then in, uh, in 2020. Now with the um, proposal um, published, uh, I would like to you know, before addressing your comments and all these small buts, I wanted to, to go back a bit to the beginning, to what Mauricio explained and what, what Jan was saying as well. I think it's important to highlight that you know, the rare diseases were always the priority and, and, and the, of our work, of the work of the Commission. Uh, it, it started you know, in, in, in the two, beginning of 2000 with the orphan regulation, which I think we all agree that this is quite a successful regulation. It, it boosted, it, it, it really created this, the, the, it launched the ecosystem for uh, rare diseases, uh, policy for rare diseases, and, and this common fight against rare diseases in, in Europe with the many research programs that we have with, you know, if I'm not mistaken, more than 2 billion euro uh, of, of research uh, devoted to rare diseases, which now is continuing with the Iran's as well uh, put in place. So it is really all a, a, an ecosystem which should help because we, we heard as well today that the science is the problem, that it's really, we have so many uh, rare diseases without any basic science uh, still uh, running. So. The orphan, uh, the policy on orphan medicines now and the, the proposal, it's, let's say, one of the tools uh, of this big ecosystem to try to, to, to look into the, we, we try to look into the reasons for the problems that we are having in, in this field. And I think the drivers of the, of the thinking are the same as you had in this group, because we come up actually with very pro um, similar solutions. So. We, we, try, we, we try with the proposal, you know, to, in, in, within our competence to tackle um, these unmet needs, which is for orphans called high unmet need, because I think it is very important to highlight that within this new framework, 
all rare diseases are considered unmet need. So that is obvious that, that, that all medicines, orphan medicines, are considering uh, medicines uh, addressing unmet medical need. So this notion of high unmet need has been introduced to, you know, to, to give this additional boost to identify and to put attention to the fact that we have a lot of rare diseases without treatment options. So we want to identify the, uh, those medicines in the, their early stages of development. We want to help this development. Uh, so in the early assessment stages at EMA, those um, developers will receive uh, additional help, um, uh, advice. Uh, they will be involved as well uh, from the members States, the payers and the HDAs, which is very important to be able to discuss together and, and decide on a comprehensive package. They might, these, uh, if they uh, fall under high unmet need criteria, they, they, they are considered as you know, promising medicines, giving, uh, if there are others, so now we speak about this 5% uh, um, which has the treatment, but we, we cannot forget that there we can have very promising medicines which we call in the um, regulation something in addition to significant benefit. So really products with this um, major therapeutic advancement, giving, giving an advancement to the, to the, um, to the patients. And, uh, and, and they should also be helped in this early process and as well with these possibilities of, of rolling review and, and, and many other help uh, at the early stages, which is very important. And then as well with the extension of market exclusivity for those products. Now, um, to refer to what Jan has said about the, the guidelines, indeed, we create a framework with, the, with some general criteria to frame the discussion. But of course, these are, these are scientific discussions where many actors need to be involved in the development of this common understanding and guidance on the high unmet need. So what is important to highlight is that uh, the aim of this revision was not to decrease the involvement of patients. In the contrary, uh, the, the aim is to increase the involvement of patients. So these references that Jan made to other articles uh, of the regulation about um, uh, these different um, uh, working groups of EMA that would develop those different guidance on unmet need, high unmet need, it is important to say that the intention of the Commission is that, of course, apart from member states' payers, that patients and other actors are involved in these discussions because um, the, these, these groups may discuss uh, under auspices, you know, umbrella of EMA, they can discuss different topics. But if we speak about unmet, high unmet needs, of course, patients need to be involved. So this, I think, needs to be as well. It's good that I can clarify, you know, from the Commission perspective. So we hope that all this, you know, will boost those developments in the high unmet need um, areas. And that's why as well the modulation of incentive has been... Um, addressed without this one uh, size fits all incentive now with the nine year which is only one less than before with an additional one year for high unmet need and as well with this additional uh, indications which can then if we have an orphan addressing high unmet need which is developed in two new different orphan conditions it ends up with 13 years of market exclusivity which is quite competitive uh, uh, worldwide what is also important to highlight here is that all these simplifications and uh, um, reduction of the assessment types uh, times with the help of EMA uh, with as well a, a regulatory framework which is now should be fit for the scientific um, developments um, um, 
this all, uh, the simplifications as well with EMA uh, dealing with the orphan designations, uh, the simplification in the structure uh, in the EMA between the different committees, which now we know that some orphans were going through all actually committees, now it will be only one. However, it is important that the expertise, of course, is remained. Um, this should really help and, and the, we should achieve the goal that, that the medicine, innovative medicines uh, for unmet needs, for high unmet needs, they reach patients uh, earlier. And let's hope, you know, that with this optimistic uh, clamp, I can uh, here um, uh, shake hands with Maurizio, who started with this optimistic, you know, views yeah. and... Uh, Thank you. <laughs> and we'll, we'll definitely uh, shake hands at the end there and let the science uh, meet this. I, I just maybe allow myself one follow-up question. You, you talk about the simplification, and, and, and definitely you see that around in the proposal, and the intentions for sure around uh, designating, classifying something as a high-end medical need to make sure to put the attention there and, and backing that up with additional incentives. Um, how, how, at the same time, I'm... I can be a bit concerned when I hear Jan talk about these new categories being more, let's say, they create a lot more uncertainty in the way that they're defined and then EMA letting them up to them to, to kind of define exactly how will these uh, new definitions play out in practice. And then, so having this system with, uh, let's say, great intentions around identifying the areas that need more in incentives and then uh, having descriptions around that, classifying product, and then giving incentives uh, to that if you classify for that. Have you, what will it take? Or I, I could be a bit concerned that these good intentions are difficult to play out in practice because the discussions around where to end and then when to qualify for this and that might end up, you know, increasing the uncertainty such that the whole, the intensive in intentions behind the system might have less impact. And I'm just bringing that back to Jan's concern in the beginning around some of these uncertainties that are created. Um, so I'm just, I was just curious to hear some of the discussions you might have had around how to play this out in practice so that it actually has the impact and doesn't uh, falter for uncertainties. Sure, thank you for that question. Uh, I, 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 am, I am sure that the aim is not to create more uncertainties. So we need to now find the system, you know, this week we create some frame for the discussion on high unmet need because we looked back at how the orphan regulation worked. Uh, we see how we do not, uh, how we try uh, to boost developments in areas where there are no developments, but it is very difficult. Uh, we have research programs ongoing. We have, once we speak now, there is a meeting with member states on the rare disease partnership. So uh, you see, so we need to create those synergies. So having a, a common understanding on what is high unmet needs for rare diseases, we speak about, of course, uh, areas without treatment options, which is quite straightforward, but we speak about those products, except exceptional promise, uh, promising medicines, which give something more than significant benefit, which should be as well rewarded. So the aim is now to sit around the table together, different actors, to find a common understanding, have it in writing, which of course needs to be with the involvement of the situation and the science, it should be as well updated. But 
think how as well it could influence the ecosystem because this could be something which could drive then the science and the scientific and the research uh, researcher programs when we have the discussion uh, the common discussion on what it means high and met means for rare diseases and we could have then under these uh, partnerships you know uh, r boosting research in these areas so we need to somehow create being the driving force Create, creating this uh, ecosystem, but in a good direction. But for that, like Jan said, we need to have many actors around the table, but we need to have EMA behind as a scientific agency in the EU um, um, assessing uh, medicines, should be in the driving seat, with, but with patients, with member states, with payers, uh, all the in, uh, important you know, stakeholders around to, to discuss what it means to have a clarity. Because, of course, clarity and predictability is very important for developers. Thank you. And I'd ask now, we are around uh, 10 minutes left or a little less, but I'd like to hear from the different, uh, um, the different uh, participants here some of the reflections based on what, what Kai is saying. Jan, uh, like a reflection from you back to your initial um, um, Speech. Thank you, Christian, and thank you very much, Kaya. Really, and, and obviously, it's reassuring to hear that the aim is not to create uncertainty and that there is good intentions. But honestly, Kaya, there is no doubt about the fact that there is good intentions behind all that. That's it's not what we're putting in question. What we're putting in question is the realism of of what it means. And really, looking back at previous regu regulations, and let's focus for one second on the orphan drugs significant benefit was there in the legislation or article 8.2 on economic criteria was there and it has been very difficult to use article 8.2 has almost not been used and it's disregarded in the new legislation that's a good thing significant benefit it depends if you speak about hypothesis of significant benefit or if it's based on clinical evidence and that's my point is that in what we have in the text today when we say that there is a framework and we leave it to scientific discussion to define guidelines this is very dangerous, very dangerous, because you can leave to scientific interpretation of the working party in charge of the orphan medicinal products to interpret. Already that leaves a lot of room of maneuver as we had in significant benefit. But leaving it to a committee or a working group specifically meeting to develop a guidelines on that, that's extremely dangerous. You don't know in which direction it's going particularly when we say that HTN payers will be there and we don't say, we just say may, again, even if you say it's obvious, but it's not what is written, that patients and healthcare pro providers will be there too. So that's really a big issue. And about the uncertainty, it's obvious that it creates uncertainty. From the moment it's a guideline, from the moment it's not in the regulation, it does create uncertainty because the guideline can be revised three years later, five years later, according to political context. That's not what an investor will be happy about. So in itself, we're making Europe less competitive and attractive immediately from the moment we use that type of language. So I think we need to be extremely careful. And about the high unmet medical needs, again, it's even worse because the language says exceptional therapeutic advantage. That's extremely restrictive. What do we mean by that? If you take spinal muscular atrophy, Gaucher disease or cystic fibrosis, according to who you ask, you will say, there is still an unmet medical needs or the medical needs are met. But until we have a cure for each of these diseases, nothing is met. And maybe tomorrow if there is a cure, which is even much cheaper than the previous cure and with less adverse events, potentially, it's even better. How do we define that? So we cannot 
plan all that. And just to conclude, to show you that I'm absolutely certain of what we're saying from the patient perspective, is that has been tabled a few days ago by five member states, by the Secretary of the Council, a document which is called uh, Applying a Needs-Driven Approach to Pharmaceutical Innovation by Austria, Belgium, Irish, Luxembourg, and Netherlands, and making the link to this pharma review, and basically saying we need to make a list of the disease for which there is an unmet medical need, because that has been the experience of Belgium, but that's really the worst way to do it. I'm absolutely in favor of pooling the, the market, pooling the investment when it comes to antibiotics or when it comes to certain vaccine, or when we want to say that in rare skin disease, there is not enough investment. So yes, we can flag certain areas where we want to pool investment or to say we're ready to pay a premium price, but to pretend that we will apply it across all the unmet needs of the population, that's a very utopic and worrisome approach. Thank you, Jan. Um, we have a few minutes left, and I'd just like to hear, before I hand over the word to you, Mauricio, uh, in the end, I'd just like to hear from you, Simon, from Biogen. You talked about the regulatory pathway, and you talked a lot about in, uh, uncertainties there being reduced by an early engagement dialogue, by various measures to connect earlier, all with the attempt to reduce certain uncertainties in the authorization process. Now, I hear a lot about here good intentions directing and centers right place, but a concern is around the uncertainties as well here. Yeah. What's your perspective on that as, an, uh, as, a, as a developer? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, a number of the points that, that, that Ian's made, I mean, I think, I want to echo, I mean, I think from our perspective as a medicine developer, I think we've got to be very clear, and Kai, you mentioned this about, you know, predictability, uh, predictability of outcomes, especially when we're investing at these very early stages in these, you know, very difficult to treat diseases. And I think, I think from my perspective, just briefly, the, the Commission's proposals around, uh, you know, a, a label around some of these very hard to treat areas attaching higher medical need is, it, from, from my own personal perspective, as speaking on behalf of as a medicine developer, I think that, that makes sense in concept. I think that opens, potentially opens up, um, you know, additional support for those products that, that are tagged as a higher medical need. I think, I think the challenge will be, you know, what that looks like in practice moving forward and, and whether there really is additional support for medicine developers for products in those areas and, and whether that translates into attracting investment into those areas. And, and I'm not sure at the moment the current proposal for, you know, the 10 years market exclusivity really does that because it's not over and above what we've seen for the last 20 years for the orphan drug uh, regulation. Thank you. Mauricio, um, I invite you to, to have a comment on, on, on what you've heard so far. But I think that, uh, uh, you know, from what uh, I heard so far, I, I, I have to say I'm an uncurable optimistic in a person in any case. So, I mean, I, I see that, uh, of course, there is quite a lot of uh, difficulties. I totally agree with what Jan was saying. It is difficult that I don't agree every time I see Jan speaking, but especially now where there is this alliance between clinicians and patients regarding the, the, the need of therapy and the need of applicability of therapy, and in particular the fact that indeed I think that uh, we are in the dangerous situation that Europe, Europe is, uh, is, losing, uh, is losing attractability uh, for, for therapies. We have already some examples of, uh, of industries withdrawing uh, uh, therapeutics in, uh, in, in Europe, and, and this is a very bad condition. 
So I think that we uh, we are in the starting point. The regulation is there, but as I, I, I Jan was saying, there are still some parts that really need to be, in my opinion, amended or in any case reviewed and uh, at least rewarded, uh, because we need not to lose this kind of opportunity. Uh, there is a, 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 a I am a, a European Reverse Network Coordinator. I think that uh, inside this scenario. A lot of data, a lot of uh, uh, aspects uh, that uh, are uh, taken and are foreseen by the regulation uh, can be generated by the ERN as, as soon as uh, the ERNs will be able to interact with companies in the proper way. So this is also another major problem that we are facing, that the ERNs are not working very much with companies as they should because we are indeed uh, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, network in the world uh, with the capacity of generating data that are extremely important to, to fill the holes of knowledge that uh, at the moment we have. Uh, I am optimistic because I see that there is, a, there is an agreement in trying to indeed do something for the patient. And we have to not lose the, the target that we have. I'm a clinician. And for me, the patient is the reason of my, of my work and it is the reason of my life. And I think that indeed, uh, you know, this is the target that we have uh, and we have to have uh, uh, at the end of any kind of regulation, especially the one that is giving access to therapy to patients with, uh, with rare diseases. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about the discussion that we had uh, so far, and I'm sorry that they cannot participate to the next one on uh, rare diseases, but nevertheless, I think that uh, you know, we need to have a follow-up on this. We need to have a follow-up, we need to have a, a sort of consensus panel, a consensus uh, paper in which everything that is being said here is clearly stated. Because uh, you know, I'm happy what Kaya was saying regarding the commitment of the European Commission regarding the the, the, the involvement, uh, you know, of different stakeholders. So I mean, I think that now is the time to act. We have people, we have a regulation, we have clear ideas what is missing, so we can pave the way to really, uh, you know, improve this scenario and to improve the possibility for patients to have a, a better therapy to access to therapy. Thank you, Mauricio, um, for, for these words. We are come to the end of our session. Um, we, 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 set, we set the scene. Uh, we're talking about the devils in the detail. I've just been confirmed, and in either, you know, through these discussions, the emphasis and the focus here for me, the takeaway for me today is definitely that, you know, there are so many positive things. What I heard, Kai, in the beginning, the, the ideas, the modulation, the ways of, of highlighting where uh, unmet needs are and so forth. It makes sense in con as a concept. The intentions are good, and the big question mark, as I hear it, is can they be implemented? The worst thing that could happen is if, if one introduces new provisions and new classifications in order to facilitate a good outcome, but at the end, the way that these classifications are being carried out in practice make them actually uh, their own barrier for success. That would be a, a terrible Catch-22 situation, and I think that is the dilemma that I, that I will uh, continue to explore and that we'll explore in the next panel as well, where we also talk about a body of, that has been implemented as an EUHA, but now we're talking about how, in fact, will this be implemented to fit a uh, purpose for the OMPs, but it apparently also um, is what we need to talk about at the broader level when we talk about the new legislation. Great concept. 
the way that we designed it, will it actually do what the intentions are? Thank you so much for all my panelists here, for being here today, Kaya, and sharing and discussing, and for the representatives of the OD Expert Group. We'll be back in 10 minutes, but do please give them a hand before you leave. And uh, stay tuned here and uh, out there, and then we'll be back with the EUHTA panel uh, in 10 minutes.
Welcome back, everyone. Those of you who are present here uh, um, at the con at the uh, at the panel, and those of you who decided to join us online, thank you and uh, welcome back. Um, we have a very very exciting 45 minutes in store for you. We'll now take uh, a further journey into the uh, specificities and some of the core uh, legislations and regulations that are out there now debated and, and needs to be implemented to meet the, the, the nuances and the specific characteristics uh, of rare diseases and OMPs. We saw from the first panel how that was really the key, that good intentions can be dwarfed by uh, the actual way of implementing and seeing that the good intentions are carried out. If that doesn't work, the good intentions will not come to reality. That was really the key dilemma and takeaway from this morning's panel. We now venture into uh, the EU HGA, so EU Health Technology Assessment. The idea that we will uh, change that around and start by looking at the joint clinical assessment uh, jointly at the EU level, that means how we assess and evaluate data coming out from clinical trials and ways to uncover through the development process of a medicine whether it actually works, it is effective, it is safe uh, for patients. Um, now, if we were talking about implementation before of something that is yet to be decided, the EUHJ has actually been decided upon, but it also says we need to discuss how in fact to implement it to make it fit for the OMPs. So we are indeed in the implementation phase and discussing how that is implemented. And that's why I'm joined with new panelists to, uh, with the expertise in that area. Um, first, we are joined with, by Yu Yan again. So those of you who were present in our morning panel, um, remember Yan de Kam, who is the CEO of Eurodis. Today, uh, now I'm also joined on my left, on my right if you see the screen, uh, Matthias Olsen, who is from the um, industry organization UCOPE um, and has, is the public uh, policy and affairs uh, manager and has a, a strong speciality and is driving the organization's uh, insights and, and understanding of the EU HTA um, for OMPs. Next to Matthias, we have Michael Walden from Novo Nordisk, so a company perspective uh, that are developing new therapies, including in the rare disease space, and uh, your, your uh, input as well, Michael, from that uh, company perspective. And finally, again, from the Commission, thank you so much, Jose Valverde, for taking the time uh, to join us. Jose, you are... Um, uh, you're the policy officer at Santa. So just like your colleague Kaya, and you both decided to join us today, it's a big honor, uh, from the C2 unit, the State of Health um, and the Health Technology Assessment. And you have previously worked in other areas uh, of the European Commission, um, but, uh, but lately I've been in charge of uh, implementing the EU HTA um, legislation. So if there was ever a capacity that we want to hear from, uh, from the Commission, it's you. So thank you so much for finding your way here. Um, let me start by setting the scene. The EU HTA uh, legislation fit for OMPs. So how is it implemented? This is what the OD expert group has been looking at for the past year. What are again the specificities of orphan medicinal products and rare diseases that we need to consider and take into account 
when we think about again the good intentions, the good ideas of uh, of doing EUHTA in a joint clinical assessment. Now, obviously, there are many benefits to that, right? Each individual country do not need to assess the same data packets and come to you know varying conclusions. Maybe there are various capabilities, different skill sets and capacities around member states. Now, again, we we leave that to a more. We we have a centralized set of of experts who are, um, who are who who can then assess this and then hand over the assessment of the clinical assessment of the data package uh, to each member state because of course it's still the member states that have the authority and the mandate to in the end determine what they want to do with that what they want to how they want to price and reimburse uh, in the end uh, new therapies but it's really good to have that uh, credible um, insight. Uh, from the joint clinical assessment around the data package. But then one point comes up here, which is a main issue with the OMPs. There are so few patients. There are so few people because it is rare diseases, right? So that's really hardly something that can be challenged. And that has consequences with very few people being part of a clinical study from which to develop insights into how a new uh, therapy might work, still in its development phase. Some patients react well to it, some do not, but you have very few. So the normal classical statistical methods around uncertainty and all these concepts, I won't bore you about statistical significance. Many of you probably uh, remember some of these from, from uh, way back in school maybe even. But they actually play a huge role when you in the end decide and assess uh, how effective and safe and so forth a new therapy, a new medicine might be. And here is the crux with the, with the OMP and the rare diseases. Very few patients changes the way to interpret potentially and use this kind of data. And then of course the question begs, and that's where the OG expert crew came in and, came and said, there are many of these uh, treatments where simply the way to capture data in a clinical trial are, are so limited so few patients scattered everywhere. Now, we just heard Kaya in the morning say, we also try to identify areas with the highest unmet medical need where maybe no treatments exist. Often they might correlate with the very utmost rarest of diseases with even fewer patients. So you can see we're venturing into a future where we'll have to assess a data package based on potentially very few patients. The question and the challenge then shaped by the OD expert group say this might actually lead us to conclude wrongly about this data package. We might, in the end, say because there's so few data packages, data points now, statistical methodologies, they're really conceived for large pools of patients and data. We might wrongfully say just because there are few patients, this medicine does not seem really to work so well, when in fact it does work. Now you may also come to the other conclusion. So in either case, but the, the, but the primary concern here is that because of few patients, you may conclude that very few patients alone is the reason you end up concluding that a good medicine does not work. Now that's of course not what we have as of intention. So how do we work with that? And the OD expert group suggests that uh, other types of data are being allowed to complement the, uh, tri the classical trial data but in a more full data package, making use and being more creative of finding pieces of data and information that can in fact inform the decision around whether a medicine is safe and uh, has a sufficient effect. 
that would be a way to, let's say, come back and overcome the challenge that looking at a limited classical trial data, we may wrongfully conclude that an effective medicine, which is in fact, let's say it's in fact effective, by wrongfully, just because of very few patients, our methodologies will lead us to conclude it is in fact ineffective. Okay, with this background, I'll be now sharing uh, the word over to our panelists to say, with this in mind from the OD expert group, um, and, and the need to supplement the classical data packets with every type of additional information and data we have, so we can get the full complete picture before making a decision around the effect of a new treatment. How do you see, uh, how do you see this, Jan? I'd like to, to, to kick it off with you from the patient perspective. How do you see that, and, and is that a real challenge, a new, potentially very effective new medicine is on its way? Are you concerned that it might not be uh, assessed in, 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 in the way that it, that it should be due to its effectiveness, but rather there, maybe because of very few patients, uh, it'll be wrongfully assessed? What do you see of challenges there, Jan? We are surely concerned. We all know that the challenge is the one of uncertainty at the time of the marketing uh, authorization, at the time of risk-benefit assessment and of relative effectiveness assessment. So now the joint clinical assessment within the European network. Why there is uncertainty? Because there is not only a limited number of patients, as you say, but also a limited knowledge. And that limited knowledge is simply because the disease is rare and that has, there has not been thousands of publications about the disease, but usually few hundreds uh, and somewhere between 200 and 600 usually uh, publications about, about the disease. So what concern is that the science and the investment well, I have a eco, I don't know if you have it too, but I didn't have that in the previous panel, just to indicate the technicality. So the, the science and investment may deliver new treatments, but we may have then difficulties as patients to have access to it, because in the middle, the HPR assessment will say there is not sufficient evidence to show what, what is the value of that medicine, what is the value proposal, what it brings in addition to existing treatments or even in the absence of treatment compared to the natural history of the of, of the disease so this is where our concern uh, is and we have been as you know promoting uh, a european approach to hta so very much in favor and supportive of the eu hta regulation and of the new network being put in place and we're very attentive to the guidelines being developed at the moment which will drive the work of the scientific uh, joint clinical assessment. The, and here, what we're calling with the working group, the expert group here on often drug incentives, is for an approach, as Christian just said, which is flexible, which is comprehensive in taking into account all the evidences, uh, and which takes into account also the real-world evidence cumulated during the clinical trials or, or right after the risk-benefit assessment and insisting on the importance on the guidance. And the guidance is the scientific advice given by the EUNET HTA, so early in the early stage of development or during the development. But what's important in the perspective is that guidance from the HTA 
is realistic in terms of what can be asked in terms of feasibility, but also ethically. In a lot of cases, it's just not ethical to ask for a randomized control trial. And that needs to be taken into consideration. And then we may need to have a better study of natural history, for instance, or we may need to have a better registry to be able to compare to something, because anyhow, for the joint clinical assessment, the assessors will need this evidence in order to see what are the clinical evidence. So we, we, we need to anticipate that in, in the scientific consultation of the HTA, but also of EMA and to coordinate that. So we're really insisting on that importance of having this coordination between EMA and HTA, and particularly to create the tools upfront in the very early dialogue at the EMA where HTA should participate, or in the scientific advice of EMA and scientific consultation of HTA to define, do we, have the do we need a natural history study? And do we agree on the method? Do we, need, do we have a registry? Do we agree on the method? The same for the clinical endpoint, the same for the surrogate endpoints and biomarkers, which are usually an issue at the moment of HTA evaluation. Do we need a comparator and which one? And to, be, to have all these elements being qualified by the EMA and HTA recognizing that this qualification by the scientific advice of EMA is valid for them in terms of generation of sufficient quality uh, evidence in comparison to their expectations. So I hope that clarifies our expectations and, and concern. To conclude, what we need to recognize in our perspective is that the issue are the uncertainty, but it's not to have an option which says it's going to be poor. No, what we need to have in the joint assessment is not the, the assessment of the efficacy and safety, but also of these uncertainties with a clear pathway for the continuum of generation of evidence to reduce these uncertainties with a clear plan aligned with EMA at the European level. Thank you very much, Jan, for this perspective and the flexibility that really uh, that really um, resonated with me. I'd like to hand over the word to you, Matthias, from UCOPE, uh, having worked on this uh, and, 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 and speaking to many, many uh, members in your organization around this. What's your take on, on this implementation uh, issue? Well, uh, thank you very much, Christian and, and Jan. I think you raised a lot of good points. Um, and I would just want to say, first of all, that you know, the EUHDA regulation is, was very much welcomed by UCO because uh, the current situation is that you have to go to 27 different uh, national processes. And UCOP, of course, represents small to mid-sized companies. And this is a huge challenge and a burden, not only for the companies, also for the HDA bodies. And so the regulation was very much welcomed because it's aimed to reduce those uh, those burdens on, on everyone involved in this, this complex system. Uh, and most importantly, uh, it, it aimed to speed up access to innovative therapies for patients. I think that's a worthy goal. And, and we really hope that <clears throat> this goal can be achieved by, uh, you know, by achieving this one-stop shop uh, at, at, at MCVA from 12th of January 2025. So I want to start off by that because sometimes these discussions, we focus a lot on you know, the challenges. There's also a lot of positive here. Mm -hmm. so, so how do we get uh, to, to, to that one-stop shop? 
think that's that's really uh, the challenge uh, that, that we are highlighting uh, in, in the ODA expert group report. Um, uh, the challenge is, of course, that uh, this, this new procedure at the EU level, the joint clinical assessment, will be replacing the national procedures. So at the national procedures, you have different ways of doing this. Uh, some of them are perhaps more accommodating of alternative methods. Um, the good thing is that in the regulation itself, uh, there's both a recital, recital 24 and article 4144, which states that uh, these, the methodologies that are adopted for assessing uh, uh, health technologies in the UHTA regulation, they shall account for specificities of, of medicinal products, ATMPs, uh, and, and vaccines. So obviously the legislators, uh, the European Commission, member states have thought about this. You know, this is something that, that we need to solve, but again, uh, here we, we come back to the guidance again, which was discussed in the first panel. The guidance documents is where this will really all be decided. So we have seen some early guidance, which uh, which uh, Jan referred to from uh, from some of the member states with more developed HDA systems. In, uh, in the, they have, um, have developed this, uh, this this proposal for methodologies, and this is quite comprehensive, I should say. It really describes a lot of the, the possible approaches. But we see that there's a reluctance to, um, as you say, first of all, there's, there's perhaps not a, a, a um, strong enough recognition of these challenges that uh, orphan medicinal products face. So uh, you mentioned the pragmatic challenges in terms of having a smaller number of patients. Jan mentioned the, the ethical challenges. This is recognized by the European Medicines Agency, for example, when it comes to regulatory approval processes. It's referred to as exceptional circumstances. We need to have this recognition, strong recognition as well within the, the uh, joint clinical assessment uh, procedure. Uh, the, the second challenge is that um, the alternative methods that do exist and are described and, and used in national procedures, they're not necessarily endorsed in the same way that, uh, the, the, of course, the gold standard for assessing therapies is, uh, is randomized controlled trials. It's randomized so you can have a, a stronger, um, um, uh, stronger certainty, you mentioned certainty, that the results that you are seeing is actually a result uh, not by some other uh, influence, uh, some outsider, uh, uh, outside force. Now, uh, because of these pragmatic and ethical challenges for, for uh, rare disease therapies, it's not always possible to do these types of, uh, of clinical trial designs. So you do single-arm trials, um, where, and, 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 and Jan mentioned we have maybe limited uh, understanding of how the disease progresses uh, naturally, but there is a way forward. It's, you can do these, these trials not in a randomized control trial, but a single-arm trial with the historic comparator arms. We talk about this in the report. I think uh, the main challenge is that we, we need to avoid that the joint clinical assessment becomes um, discontinued or delayed and that we end up delaying access to patients compared to what exists now. We really want to speed up access uh, to, to patients uh, to these innovative therapies. And the way that we ensure that is that there's a strong recognition of those challenges and that there's a, a broad endorsement of a common way of assessing these types of, of, of technologies. Now, there's an, there's an opportunity. I want to end a bit on, on a call to action because Christian asked, asked me to do so, and I think that's the, the main reason why we have spent so much time putting together this report. Um, and, uh, and really, I hope that the, the, the other stakeholders in the stakeholder network, which will now... Uh, have a, have a role and, and a say, and it's been set up by the European Commission. They had the first meeting on the 14th of June, that uh, the other stakeholders, uh, the clinicians, the patients, uh, et cetera, and the stakeholder network will also uh, take up this report and, and read it and, and see what we have to say, and, and I hope that this, we will be able to, to feed into the, the final methodology that will be developed. I really want to appeal to the member states and the coordination group as well, as they are now finalizing the methodologies by the beginning of next year, that they also look at the report that we've been to put together 
that we can have a strong recognition of these challenges and that this makes it into the guidance that we adopt. Thank you very much, uh, Matthias. I think that was very uh, comprehensive and, uh, and, and really the idea of uh, this need to speed up access, uh, not delay. And you're, you're, you're questioning a little bit in your own very polite way, as I hear it, is there strong enough, it says there, it has to ad adhere to the specificities. Is there strong enough recognition of that? And then, in fact, how to do that so we, in fact, speed up and, and do not delay? Okay, point taken. That's interesting to hear. If we maybe now turn to a specific company, and um, Michael, maybe I, 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 I was just um, missing to just your, 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 your experience that you bring here. I just want to put that straight before giving you the word. You are actually the Health Economics and Outcome Research Director at Nordois, exactly for the rare disease uh, um, maybe most uh, known for uh, broader patient groups in diabetes, but you have actually developed uh, a growing business in the rare disease and are increasingly focused on that, and you play a central and key role in the development of that. So I'm just, with that background, you know, very curious to hear about your perspectives uh, from a single company looking into this EUHTA. Uh, what do you see? Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for, for updating my, my resume here. Um, it uh, very much to what uh, what Matthias uh, said just before me. I think we both see opportunities and challenges with this, but let's start with the opportunities. Uh, uh, similar to uh, what Matthias mentioned before, there are several opportunities in this uh, proposal here uh, within the harmonized clinical assessments that we can actually have one-stop uh, clinical assessment of uh, of a uh, of of what we would normally go with in multiple countries before. Um, so that is uh, that is uh, one thing that uh, that's uh, definitely uh, an opportunity for us in the future. But of course, we need to to uh, combat some some of the uncertainties that uh, that uh, that are coming with this proposal as well. But uh, ultimately, I think companies do uh, anticipate that this will help both uh, increase the speed, but also broaden the possibilities of uh, groups that can get access to new uh, rare diseases. Um, but as, as was mentioned before by, by my, my fellow panelists here, uh, we, uh, we do within rare disease have some, some uniqueness that are not uh, uh, present in, in common diseases, like working with very small patient groups that are heterogeneous, scattered, very ge ge geographically dispersed, uh, making the, what we normally refer to as the gold standard clinical package a little more difficult uh, in the sense that we need to take other measures when generating our evidence plans. Um, similar to Matthias before mentioned that uh, sometimes we, we, are, we are forced into uh, to doing uh, single arm trials and, and making the best of that due to, to, uh, to both uh, practical and ethical concerns, but also need to consider uh, different st statistical methodologies um, as well as uh, uh, um, needing to compare to different comparators, meaning that uh, indirect treatment comparisons uh, is often also also the case here uh, because of the lack of of, uh, of controls in the, in, the, in the trial program. So these are some of the methodological uh, uh, issues that we are we are faced with within rare disease. Um, but also um, with the new legislation, of course, from company perspective, uh, we are also considering, apart from the methodological, also the operational uh, uncertainties. Really, how, how will the transition from the regulatory clinical package go into the HTA uh, clinical package? How much can be reused and how much additional uh, elements do we need to, to, to take from that? And of course, going that step further from the, the joint clinical assessments into the country-specific value assessments, uh, how, how is that being done? practically. Uh, 
but uh, these are some of the uncertainties that we are looking forward to resolving and uh, uh, similar to, to Matthias before, I, I think I will also come with a call for action for the, for the industry to, to embrace this and um, hopefully be invited as a, as a constructive uh, collaboration partner uh, when, when uh, the assessment is, uh, is being done in, in kind of continuous uh, dialogue, but also making sure that um, uh, within the intra-industry that we learn from each other. So uh, with the front runners, for example, the HEMP companies that we are looking to these and share best practices on, on how these uh, assessments can be done. So definitely a, also a call for the industry to, to uh, increase the collaboration um, internally and, and learn from each other uh, on this new process. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. We've, we've now heard three different perspectives from the OD expert group on this, um, let's say, concern. And I, I do see across all of them, before handing the, the word over to you, uh, Jose, I do see across all of them, you know, there's a, number, there's a lot of opportunity and, and, and positive drive towards the, this approach. Having, you can derive a lot of value from that as a European Union and community. Uh, but the but is... Is it realistic enough? Is, the, is it taking the challenges they're obviously considered and acknowledged because they're actually part of the regulation? But there seems to be some kind of concern. It, it, are the concerns and the true challenges really taken due into account? Um, is it realistic? Do, is there a realistic notion of what kind of data package could be asked for and how creative one could be to gather auxiliary data to complement and make a full uh, data package fit uh, for, for assessment? Um, and um, and I'd like to hand over the word to you and say, saying, how are you uh, working with this legislation, thinking about making it fit for a piece? How do you work with these dilemmas and concerns? Well, thank you very much for the invitation. First, uh, it's an opportunity to get direct feedback from the orphan drugs uh, world, which is a part of what HTA is now doing. But uh, First, I would like, as my colleague also, try to remember how is all this has been done. It's years of member states' collaboration and also talking with the industry through different joint actions, how that can be done, but also with the patients. It's also years of capacity building, try to acknowledge the differences between different member states, different methods, different methodologies, approach. There is not a single state that has the same process that the other ones. So there is a lot of transition phase. And so it took four years to complete this regulation uh, in Tolkien. Now we have three years in a transition mode to build it. And I would like to say that this transition period is one where we have to build trust from the different sectors because this is a great challenge. I mean, trying to do the joint clinical assessment at the same time that the market authorization is going is a challenge. It's not being done before. So we are trying to do something that will speed up if everything goes as we thought, to work on shorter times for making a decision. But take it also into account that this regulation is driven by member states. So the commission is the secretariat. What uh, the joint clinical assessment is going to provide is what we call classically. The evidence is global, the decision is local. So all that pertains 
the clinical evidence will be there, the description of the technology, the evidence that is available at that time. And I address one of your comments about to be flexible enough to have time to provide new evidence. But at a certain moment, we will have to cut that dialogue and maybe restart it at another moment later. But yes, try to do that. Uh, and my point is also, of course, we have, and we are speaking with Emma, not only with the stakeholders, as, as you mentioned, the, the, the network. That was uh, for us a, a critical moment also, because uh, the governance structure is conformed by mm, a group of coordinating mm, member states with different subgroups. The methodological aspects are starting to be discussed in the subgroup on methodology and, and guidance and procedures. But there are other subgroups, one working on joint clinical assessment, a third one working on joint scientific consultations, and also this transition between what was the service contract and when it will start. We have still 18 months to go until the 12th of January of 25. And I would like to say also that pay into account that this transition period is also a stepwise approach and has, has to be done like that because we have to build not only the trust, but also the human resources, the capacity to do this in the member states. So orphan drugs will be addressed on the 13th of January of 2028, because first we are addressing oncological indications mostly and advanced uh, therapies. Then later orphan drugs and everything hopefully will recover from 13 January 2030. Maybe later we can address some of the comments made by Jan. I agree with him. This is a big opportunity to have critical, good value uh, drugs and products and medical devices faster in the, in the market. I think that is something that we all want. And, uh, but at the same time, there are many challenges and uh, has to be built together. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. I really, uh, I really pick up on the trust issue there, and I, I heard uh, both Matthias and Michael and Jan, obviously, as well, uh, really talking about this opportunity for constructive input and really take a, a, a like the OD expert is growing now, and, and Michael, you're also saying, you know, really a call to industry to keep engaging in a constructive way. Um, Jan, if you think about, uh, you know, I'm yeah, inspired by this trust building that really is a, is a center of how Jose wants to build a, the good implementation platform over the coming years. How do you see, uh, let's say, some of the, the issues or some of the questions around uh, stakeholder um, involvement in joint clinical assessment? This is key because in the regulation, it's not often to be compulsory. Uh, so it all depends on the guidelines being developed at the moment by the European HTA network, but also I would say on the goodwill of the future leaders of that network and members of the steering committee and of the commission, etc. But there is a second aspect is that it's, it's the practice which is important. It's not only about engaging one patient representative into the joint clinical assessment. It's about doing it in advance. It's about having maybe two. It's <clears throat> about 
assessing competing interest in a way that understands that in the field of rare diseases, the most active patient advocates are working with the academic researchers, with the industry and with the regulators and HTA. And that it's important to know that and to be transparent, but maybe not to exclude them because of that, if we want to have the competent people in the room. So this participation of patients, we believe, is essential. Now, Christian, to follow up on what your panelists also said, I would like to insist again on the importance of the very early dialogue, on the early dialogue, which is foreseen, but needs to be also encouraged here too. It's about the practice. It needs to be a clear signal from the European HTA network to the developers to come early to discuss and have the guidance on the planning on the evidence generation in order to have the proper clinical evidence at the time of the assessment in the joint clinical assessment. And that's very important. And we've seen that in practice from our experience at the EMA, the earlier, the better the outcome. So even for the company, from the developer and investor perspective, it's better to go early. But we've seen that also with the mechanism of coordinated access to orphan drugs, the so-called MOCA, where we work with 14 payers in Europe. And we had the experience on 26 products already. And it's consensus among the developers and the payers that early dialogue enabled to have a better planning of the evidence in order to have a, better, a more informed discussion at the time of the assessment. So that that's very, very important. And I hope that the resources will be given to the European network in order to be that to do that work, because that may mean to have more than one meeting, to have one very early dialogue and one later, again, scientific consultation. Thank you, Jan. I, I feel like we're on a path here to try and, and uh, provide input to assess wish to build trust over the next coming years to actually facilitate the right di dialogues uh, or the right methodologies and, 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 and implementation framework. Patients must be involved to build the trust and a very early dialogue with the UHTA network and developers to work early with developers also a way of building that trust in order to actually to facilitate models that everyone feels, yes, this way of looking at it actually caters for the specificities of OMPs. Um, as a member here, uh, Matthias, of the uh, OD expert group uh, coming, you know, having a lot of knowledge with the background and what, what, your, what companies and developers are saying, what do you think about these, uh, this, this way of thinking about building trust? What more would be necessary? Well, I, I think, um, you know, we have, we have some great examples already, and I think, I think it's right to draw some parallels to the way that the European Medicines Agency was set up, because it's also, you know, it, it's not something that was built in a day, and, and uh, you had to build that trust between the member states, but also between the different stakeholders, and, and it, took, it took a while to get there. I don't think everything will be solved in a year and a half, and we'll, hopefully we will continue to have these conversations. Although, of course, uh, even if OMPs are only subject from 2028, uh, OMPs with a cancer uh, indication would, would still be subject from 2025. So it's still important that we have these, these discussions now b before uh, that point in time, also so that this can be factored into those joint scientific consultations that should already be happening around this time in preparation for, for 12th of January 2025. So um, I think that the trust can be built. We have a, we have a very good framework uh, with the regulation. 
We have uh, the, the coordination group of member states, which really will be, um, as you mentioned, Jose, they are, they are really the ones that are, are driving this and, and I would say uh, providing the governance structure and, and in the end deciding on, 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 the, on the rules of the road and, and methodologies and the way to do this and the way, way to work together. But we also have the, the stakeholder network. Um, and and uh, to Jan's point, it, it is so important. And another great achievement with this regulation is that patients now really are uh, involved in, in, a, in, a, in a formal way in the assessments themselves, together with clinicians as well, very important. Uh, but having this stakeholder network and, and really uh, utilizing that to build that trust in the same way that, way that the European Medicines Agency is doing, where they have these regular interactions or exchanges with stakeholders uh, to discuss the methodology, to have a frank discussion, maybe not to, to, to give the, the pen to the stakeholders, but to really to, to have some, some, some clear outcomes on the way forward together. Having those discussions, I think that's the way that we build trust and hope that we, we use the stakeholder network to the fullest. A very good framework with the regulation, I heard, Jose. And then this trust thing. Could you elaborate now? You heard some of the inputs on, on what will it take in this period to create the trust so that we, in the end, get something that all stakeholders feel, yes, this will, this is, these are good methodologies for assessing OMPs. Could you elaborate a, a bit on this trust uh, idea and this, uh, I don't know if that's too big, a roadmap for trust building over the next years? What well, does that look like? Um, many thanks for the different aspects. I don't know if I will be able to deal with all of them, but I think that the very interesting suggestions that this dialogue is already open and uh, we are talking on the, as you mentioned, on the, on the meeting the other day, but there are several other. Uh, we are also uh, putting in place capacity building projects for the patients so that they are already running, but also capacity building uh, for the own member states, so to help them uh, and the agencies develop the competencies to work together at an international level, and also knowing the differences between the member states. We have to take into account many uh, subtleties. Uh, there, there are places where it's a small group of people making the whole decision, making the process. There are big countries big, with a lot of agencies, with a lot of academia supporting them. So we have to make all that things go together. Uh, before you were talking about real-world evidence and real-world data, yes, we are looking expectantly at what can be done from there. And recently, Emma has already uh, put a statement on, on what they are doing. They, we are investing, uh, I think, from in research projects quite a lot, uh, Horizon Europe and many others, on getting to know what. But still, when you say real-world data, what is that? We want a common understanding. Because in some countries, electronic health records are real-world data. For a clinician, electronic health record will be the only real data. So. The perspective is from where you see it. Joint scientific consultations are very important and extreme, I would say extremely important for small and medium enterprises to understand what are the processes behind, how to approach them, what is the evidence. But this is also uh, substantiated in the human resources of the agencies of the member states. And of course, so we have to build, little by little, more capacities on that. And you can also help from your side in the sense that we have a horizon scanning, a group on emerging health technologies. If we get advice of these 
upcoming new technologies, medical devices, uh, medicinal products, we can take back and calculate what is going to be the impact in the next years and what human resources we have to put in place in the future. So it is very important to work also with this uh, subgroup of the, of the coordination group. We saw it as a different steps. First, trying to get as soon as possible awareness of what is coming, horizon scanning, emerging health technologies, joint scientific consultations, of course, as much as we can do, and joint clinical assessments done at the same time of the market authorization so that the decalage will be very small, hopefully. If we don't have, or if the people doing the joint clinical assessment will not have enough evidence to make a clear recommendation, which again, the clinical evidence will be there, but there will not be a recommendation. All social, legal, economic aspects will be analyzed at national level. They have to use by the regulation the joint clinical assessment, so be sure that they have to do it, they have to, and this is the compromise of the member states. But again, the decision is there. If there is not clearly enough evidence or you have more evidence coming later, then it will be the question of reopening that joint clinical assessment, maybe. Checking the indications. I think there is a whole world behind, which is very interesting, but I think like that, talking and talking also with Jan about uh, how we can integrate the patients, experts or not, because in between different countries, you see that in some countries, patients with a certain disease will be considered biased, so not consulted by the processes. So it's, it differs between the countries, and it is very important now to have also the HTA uh, institutions working together at European level. After 15 years of already collaboration, there are still things to be arranged, to be finally fitted. Thank you, Jose. I think there's a, the platform and the opportunity here to really come up with something that effectively, that is effective, takes into account the nuances of OMPs. It, it, it seems that it's really on the radar, and, but still acknowledging, because the framework is there, but still acknowledging there's a bit of a journey uh, towards even defining and discussing what is actually real-world data and real-world evidence. When can we utilize it? I think these are some of the things that are a big concern to the OD expert group and also in the report. By the way, I hope you'll be inspired also by the, by the uh, brief conflict of interest note that the OD expert group put out. We didn't pay so much attention to it now mm -hmm. uh, to keep a focus, but it actually does address the concerns around how do you involve experts when there are few of them? Uh, can you do better than just disregarding them? So, so there are some, some good guidance in there. Mm -hmm. we are, we're coming uh, close to the half hour, which means uh, the end of here. I'd like to, uh, to thank the panelists and, and really just keep on the positive note installed by, by our chairman, Mauricio Scaba, in the beginning, uh, in the first session, that there's real optimism here. I hear great support from a, for a very strong framework, but again, the devil lies in the details in the implementation. I hear Jose saying, yes, when we do have some years and we're standing on uh, you know, many years of history and experiences from member states, we're in a good way. And, and the, out, the, 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 the reaching out across to patients, to companies, um, to industry organizations, to really be part of this, uh, I, I see as something positive and probably the foundation of this roadmap for trust building that will get us there in the end. 
allowing us in a trustful manner to go through methodology concerns, data concerns, uses of real-world evidence, open up, not open up, all these things. Um, but I, I, I see that uh, we're on the right path. So uh, I'll end this uh, second panel session and thereby the whole event by staying uh, optimistic and at the same time we have uncovered some of the true uh, key pivotal issues that we need to, uh, uh, to address uh, and then there are, are, are potentials uh, in, in the road ahead. Thank you so much Jan again, Matthias, Michael and Jose uh, for joining and all the rest of you. Give them a big hand. <laughs>